Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the power of your Holy Spirit that gives us the ability to hear your voice, gives us the ability uh, to process what you're doing in us and through us. And we pray today, as as you have already done, we pray today that you would would, uh, speak to us by your Spirit. And we pray that each one of us today would have hearing ears and that we would be sensitive to your voice and that every one of us would leave this place having heard something that you've said to us or having seen something that you've shown us today by your revelation. I thank you in the name of Jesus and everyone said, Amen. Amen. Now, James Owen and Phil Eeks and Roddy have stepped all over my message today. Of course, that's probably because they all looked at the notes or not. We are concluding this series called The Church, Which is His Body. Cheryl informed me this week that today is message number 21. I realize there's been that many. Say so he's long-winded. Well... There's a lot of material, too. Um, And so for 20 Sundays, we've been talking about the church, which is his body. The first Sunday, I read this verse, or these two verses. I'm going to read them again today. Uh, And it's Ephesians 1, 22 through 23. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body. The fullness of him who fills all in all. Did you notice the fullness of him? The church, which is his body, the fullness of Jesus Christ in the earth. We have a mission. And so today we conclude this series with a, with the topic of God's occupational ground force. Anytime there's a, there's a military campaign, uh, I think even with today's technology, it's still important that the, the military have a, have someone on ground, on the ground, so to speak and have an occupational ground force. Now, I'm going to give you a really quick review of where we've gotten so far. Uh, all of these CDs are available. I think all of these messages are probably still on the podcast. Uh, we started with uh, a message entitled, This Exceedingly Great Army, and we wanted to understand the role of the church in, in advancing the kingdom of God in the earth, the role of the church. We established that Jesus is the head over all things in the church and that we are his servants, and we read 2 Corinthians 5.20, we are ambassadors for Christ. Everybody say ambassadors. Ambassador. See, that's you. That's not just preachers. That's not just clergy. That's you. We are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. And we identified that Jesus is the architect and the builder of his church. He told his disciples, I will build my church. And sometimes we're trying to build the church, and we're getting in his way. I'm glad for that. Amen. <clears throat> and we identified because he's the architect and because he's the builder that his followers are his construction workers. His followers are his construction workers. We looked at uh, Ezekiel 37, the assembly of the body. We looked where he spoke, had had the prophet prophesied to the valley of dry bones. They began to assemble skin, sinews, muscles, all that began to to come upon these dry bones. And then God said, prophesy for the breath to come to these dry bones. And when the breath of God touched these these, uh, 
formerly dry bones, they became living beings, and they became something that God had put together. God has always been in the assembly business, and he's still assembling today. And he he had a definite plan. He has a definite plan to how he wanted the bones to go together in that prophecy. And uh, so that tells us that each person and each local church has their sphere of responsibility and influence that God expects us to bring his kingdom into. If we could understand that, we would stop fighting among churches and competing among churches, understanding every time a new pastor or a new church comes to Mount Juliet, I try to welcome them and as much as I possibly can, and I tell them all the same thing. There's people you're going to reach that we'll never reach. And there's people we're going to reach that you're never going to touch. There's a lot. There's a, somebody said, we don't need another church in Mount Juliet. Yeah, we do. We need more churches in Mount Juliet. Because there's people that will never get reached unless a certain uh, sphere of responsibility is met. Then we talked about when each part is working properly. That the church has a definite form with a definite structure of life that we relate to one another. And we wanted to make sure that we are properly joined where and how God intends. God sets the members in the church as it pleases Him. We can go on a membership campaign if we want to, but we're going to wind up dragging some people in with the net that God did not intend to be with us. He should be down the street with somebody else. But God does that. Y'all say, that man's crazy. I know. Uh, and so when we talk about members with one another, we make sure that we are properly joined and we connect and share a common bond and a common life. And so we take responsibility for contributing life to one another, sort of what, what we talked about earlier. And we see God's sovereign design when he puts his body together. He has one body with many members, one body with many members, and he is the divine arranger. God is the divine arranger, and there is no independence in the human body, so there's no independence in Jesus' body, in Christ's body. You, you know, we, he, you, uh, 1 Corinthians 12, you, your hand can't say, I want to be the foot. It just doesn't work that way. Your hand's got to be the hand. And your foot's got to be the foot. And so Ezekiel 37 says the bones came together bone to its bone. And then thirdly, we talked about the body of Christ sharing life, that there is a supernatural dynamic result that occurs when we enjoy fellowship with one another as members of his body. Dynamic. Everybody say dynamic. dynamic. That is supernatural. And that's where we, we get our word from. We get that word from the Greek word dunamis, dunamis, dynamic. Fellowship, we identify as koinonia, which simply means sharing in common or sharing life in common or communion when we take communion together. And our fellowship with one another must be born out of our fellowship with the Godhead. It can't just, if, if, let, me, let me back up. If our fellowship with one another is not born out of our fellowship with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, then all we have done is we've created a club. Now, I'm a member of the Andy Griffith Show Rerun Watchers Club. <laughs> but it's just a club. But to, to share life together, it has to come from God, the Father. Fellowship produces transparency and cleansing. Fellowship provides supply and growth, which is from God. Fellowship evokes the dynamic presence of Jesus. Remember he said, where two or three are gathered, I will be there. I consider that a promise. Do you? Yeah. 
All right, come alive now. I'm going to go find me a black church to preach in. (laughs) Fellowship is the incubator for many of God's dealings with us. It's where God puts us in in the crock pot, so to speak, and he works on us. And it looks like this, iron sharpens iron, one man sharpens another. And then after we did that, we spent a significant amount of time dealing with the gifts. We started with the, the leadership gifts in Ephesians 4, uh, and then we, apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher. Then we moved to Romans 12 and talked about the gifts from the Father that are differing. We can't go through all of them, but the, the gift of administration, the gift of helps, the gift of giving, the gift of encouragement, all of those gifts. We dealt with those for some time. And as we re, uh, referred to earlier, we just recently concluded uh, the series from First Corinthians, Corinthians 12, the nine gifts or dynamic gifts of the Holy Spirit. We'll come back to that, but those are important. And so the conclusion we reached after, at that stage of the game is that Jesus arrived proclaiming the kingdom of God is now near. Everybody say near. near. And then began assembling his church to spread the good news of the kingdom. Thus... His church serves him by extending the kingdom of God into the hearts of mankind and the earth. We have a mission. Y'all might have noticed this, but we're still here. If you're not still here, I'd like to know about it. But if you are still here, we have a mission. And, you know, I heard Bob Mumford say one time, if if all God wanted to do was get us to heaven, he'd just need a preacher with a gun. Get us saved and take us out. There's more to it than that. That's because we have a mission. And then when Jesus talked about in Luke, he talked about a parable of the great banquet. And he made this statement that I think is so significant to where we are as the church. And I don't mean abundant life church necessarily, but the church. When you give a feast, how many of y'all believe coming to Christ is equivalent to a feast? I'd like to heard more of you say amen to that. But anyway, it's, it's the equivalent to a feast because we receive sustenance from the Father. Okay. When you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. Wait a minute. That, anyway, anyway, I'm going to leave that alone. And you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. How many of you know that that description is not necessarily limited to economic position. There are a lot of people who are poor and lame and blind who have a lot of money in their pocket. And yet their condition of their soul and their spirit, he said, invite those folks. Don't just go invite the demographic that you're aiming for. I don't aim at demographics. I hope you know, we don't aim at demographics here. The, here's, we do aim at one demographic, the, the poor, the blind, the lame, people who need the gospel. That's our demographic. And then he said in Luke 14, go into the highways and along the hedges and compel them. Everybody say compel. Compel Compel them to come in that my house may be full. Compel is a, it's not a bossy word. It's not a demanding word, but it's got a lot of intensity to it. It's like, man, you need to get in here for your sake and for Christ's sake. It's It's compel them to come in. And he did that when he told his disciples the Great Commission. It's already been referred to today. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations. 
are the bottom line. Again, Derek Prince, going back to Derek, I heard Derek say one time that uh, when he was in, you've heard me say this, but when he was in the military, he was told to the last order that he received from his commanding officer to keep doing that one until he got another one. And he said, Jesus' last order to us on the earth was go and make disciples. And until we get another one, we're supposed to keep doing that one. I got a hint for you. We're not going to get another one. That one is eternal. So our role as his, as his church, as you've already heard this morning, is primarily to go and make disciples. There's an interesting play on the tense of that word. It could be translated as you are going make disciples, or while you are on your way, make disciples. And some people try to cause those two to compete. I don't see any competition. I think there's room for our being able to make disciples as we are going and while we are on our way. And there's also room for a command that says go and make disciples, go to a particular place or a particular way. At the bottom line is that we make disciples of Jesus Christ. And we see this in the essence of the John 17 prayer. We often look at this prayer. I think I did a whole series on it one time. Uh, but we, we, I want to show you what the content or the essence of this prayer is. In verse 9, he says, I am praying for them. In verse 11, he says, I am no longer in the world. Now, that's kind of funny. He was in the world, but he really wasn't because he was praying, Father, glorify me. He had come to the end of his mission. He said, I am no longer in the world. They are in the world. Now, some of the Bible can be daunting. Even Peter, in one of his letters, said some of Paul's writings are really tough. Some of Paul's writings, we can't, it's hard for us to understand what he's talking about. It's not hard to understand when Jesus said, I'm not here, but they are. You getting a clue? Jesus is not here in the flesh. But we are. We're in the world. See, though, so then he says in verse 15, don't remove them. We're, we, we have had, and I pray that it's not as much as it used to be, but we have had in the church an escapist mentality. And that mentality says, Lord, get me out of here. Let the devil have the world and get me out of here. That's escapism. Jesus didn't pray that. He said, don't take them out. Don't remove them. Now protect them. From the evil one, but don't remove them. Why? We have a mission. We have a mission in the earth as his church. When he's ready for us to be removed, I guarantee you, you'll be removed one way or the other. But until then, and you've often heard me say, if we put a mirror underneath our nose and it fogs up, we have a mission. Well, think about it. And he said, To the Father, verse 18, as you sent me, so I send them. We are sent, we are commissioned by Jesus Christ. And then he prayed for us. He was praying for the disciples of verse 20. He says, I also pray for those to come, those who will come, those who will believe. Everybody say, that's me. me. Everybody say, that's us. Okay, I'll buy that. In verse 23, he said, why? Bottom line, why? So that the world may know that you sent me and and you love them even as you have loved me. So the world may know that you sent me. It's important. I was speaking 
might have been some of you guys. I can't remember who I was speaking to. Someone about the bottom line. Well, we have to always keep the bottom line in view, whether that be economical or business or whether it be the gospel. The bottom line in view. What is the bottom line? So that the world may know. What is the bottom line? That we would go and make disciples. That's the bottom line. And if what we're doing does not funnel our activities to that bottom line, we need to change what we're doing. Y'all looking at me like I got two heads. So Jesus, you could sum up, Jesus said, Our Father who is in heaven. Where's where's the Father? Is the Father on the earth in physical form? That's a no would be the right answer there. He said, May your kingdom come down from heaven to earth. You're in heaven. God the Father, our Father who is in heaven, who art in heaven. May your kingdom come on the earth. So the qualities and the characteristics and the principles of God's heavenly kingdom, Jesus prayed that they would be established on the earth. Let me just tell you, they are not coming down in a cloud. They're coming through his church. Boy, y'all are quiet. I got some five-hour energy drinks back there if somebody needs one. (laughs) Okay. So... That brings us to Luke 19. We're going to talk about, just for a few minutes, about stewarding God's capital. And you say, well, you had not even read any Bible verses yet. Well, we are about to. Luke 19, 11, if you would stand uh, with me. If you can't stand, that's fine. You're not going to offend me. We're going to read a little more lengthy of a passage than we normally do. Uh, it says in verse 11, I'm again reading from the English Standard Version, as they heard these things, He proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came from before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said, Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came and said, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. Then another came saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and you reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then do you not put my money in the bank, and at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas. Have you ever heard me say God is not fair? Next verse. And they said to him, Lord... He has ten minas, or you could put in there, he already has ten minas. Why would you give it to him? Because I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. 
But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me? Well, that's an encouraging word to close. You can be seated. (laughs) Amen. Amen. The line there says, engage in business until I come. The old King James there says, occupy till I come. Occupy, which again, we learn now is an, is a term of economics. And it's, it's giving equity or capital to someone and expecting them to use it to produce. All God's people, all people period, but especially God's people have an innate desire and necessity to be productive. If you're not being productive in whatever vocation you're involved in, then you, you're going to wind up being depressed and unfulfilled. And God's, in, in using this parable, God says to us, I'm giving you some capital. I'm giving you some equity and I want you to engage in business until when? Till he comes back. So when do we stop engaging with business, with what God has given us until he comes back, whatever that looks like. I wish I was an expert on that. And and he, part of the equity, part of the capital that he gives us are the gifts that we just got through studying, the various gifts by the by his spirit that he gives us, not just so we can impress and wow one another, and not just so we can draw a crowd with the spectacular, but he gives us these gifts so that we can use them out there. It's great to use them in here, we should, but out there is when they're more useful. When we engage with people and God gives us supernatural abilities, word of wisdom, word of knowledge, gifts of healings, and so forth and so on. He gives us seed to sow. Probably the greatest gift we have, the greatest equity, the greatest capital we have is that God gives us seed to sow. Psalm 26, you've sung it. Though one goes along weeping, carrying the bag of seed, he will surely come back with shouts of joy carrying his sheaves. Weeping represents our diligence. Weeping represents our concern and our desire for those who are the poor and the lame and the crippled and the blind. And we go out and and engage with those however life takes us to them, or in some cases we are commanded to go to them. But whatever may be the case, we go with a proverbial bag of seed. Now, I'm looking around the room. I don't see any bags hanging off anybody's belt today. But if I could see with my spirit eyes, I'd see a bag of seed. Because the seed, Luke 9 tells us, is the word of God. The seed is the word of God. It is the gospel. The gospel message is contained, in my opinion, in two locations. And there's a lot more to it. Uh, Romans 14, 9, for to this end or for this purpose, Christ died and lived again. Why did Christ die and be resurrected from the dead and that he might be Lord? Everybody say Lord, Lord. both of the dead and of the living. Now, he's going to be Lord of the dead before they're dead. Y'all get that, don't you? Okay. 
I do have some five allergy energy drink back there still. He, he died and he rose again so that he could be Lord both of the dead and the living. And then Paul writes to the church of Corinth. He said, I'm reminding you of the gospel that I preached to you. And this is what he said to them. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, in accordance with the scriptures. There is a movement afoot today in some corners of the church to, um, oh my goodness, to denigrate the scriptures. To say the scriptures are invalid. They have used their purpose. They, have, they are no longer our source and our standard for living. You'll never hear that from me because that's totally untrue. In accordance with the scriptures, Jesus died and was raised. You say, how do I present the gospel message? Well, you don't have to be theological. Sometimes I think it's better if people aren't deep in theology to just tell somebody, you know, like the blind man said, I don't know about all that stuff y'all are saying about him, all the stuff, all the labels that you're putting on him and all the things you're saying that he did. I don't know about all that here, but i tell you what I do know. I used to be blind, and now I'm not. And that's the best testimony you can give. I used to be lost, and now I'm not. I used to be fill in the blank, and now I'm not. That's the gospel. And Jesus came preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and in some ways the gospel of a new kingdom. Because he said in Mark 1.14, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of God. Of course, the kingdom of doesn't appear in all the versions. But verse 15, and saying the time is fulfilled. So something new is happening. And the kingdom of God is at hand or it's near. It's accessible. Repent. Or in other words, turn. Turn or burn. No, that's not what he said. <laughs> turn. <laughs> From where you're going and turn to the kingdom. That's the gospel that Jesus preached. Luke 4.43, he says, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. Watch this. For I was sent for this purpose. What purpose? To preach the good news, the gospel of God's kingdom. In the earth. And in Luke 8 1, we see soon afterward, he went on through the cities and villages proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. What is the good news of the kingdom of God? There is a new kingdom. There is a new reign taking place. Now that I'm here, Jesus is saying, now that I'm here, there is a new kingdom with power and strength and mercy and forgiveness. And all the things that we enjoy as believers in Jesus Christ and the people under the old covenant didn't necessarily enjoy it the way we did, the way we do, because we have the Holy Spirit indwelling us and empowering us. New kingdom, all the characteristics of God established in the earth. New kingdom. And Jesus went about, everywhere Jesus went, he was preaching. We have this new kingdom that's coming to the earth through the church. And when you and I talk to people outside of that kingdom, when you and I talk to the poor and the lame and the blind and the crippled, we need to let them know there is a kingdom that is right. There is a kingdom that is full of glory. 
and full of love and peace because many of them are under the domain of the kingdom of darkness who has none of that. From his book, God is the Gospel, John Piper says the gospel not only launches the truth that God is the creator who is alive today, it also includes the truth that he is the king of the universe who is now in Jesus Christ exerting his imperial authority in the world for the sake of his people. In Romans 10.15, the apostle Paul quotes Isaiah 52.7 to show that his gospel had been predicted by God. And it said, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness and who publishes salvation and who says to Zion, your God reigns. The gospel message and the message of the gospel of the kingdom starts and finishes with those words, you are, your God reigns. Those last words define one foundational part of the good news that Isaiah foretells. Your God reigns. God's sovereign rule is essential to the gospel. Any gospel that does not include Jesus is Lord is not the gospel. It may be a message. But it's not the good news of the kingdom of God. I I continue. Isaiah foresaw the day when God's sovereign rule over all things would break into this world in a more open way and bring great blessing to the people of God. So when the promised Messiah came into the world, this is the primary way he spoke the gospel. Jesus came into Galilee. This sounds familiar, I know. Proclaiming the gospel of God. And saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Watch this. In other words, the reign of God. Everybody say, the reign of God. The reign of God God has broken into this world to set things right for the sake of his people. Therefore, repent and believe this good news. In fact, if you do, you're a part of his people. In a world so full of brokenness and sin, there simply can be no good news if God does not break in with kingly authority. If God does not come with sovereign rights as king of the universe, there will be hopelessness in this world. And that's what we mean when we say preach the kingdom the gospel of the kingdom, the good news of God reigning. When God reigns over our lives, when God reigns over our businesses, when God reigns over our churches, when God reigns over whatever we're identified with, good things happen. If he's not Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. Oh, goodness, help me, Lord. The light of the gospel. 2 Corinthians 4, you can just take notes or you can turn if you want to do a lightning round. 2 Corinthians 4, very clear. And this is a message to us. He says, if, if the gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. And then he continues this way. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. God of this world, Satan, blinded the minds of the unbelievers. To keep them from seeing 
You see that? To keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord with ourselves as your servants. For Jesus' sake, verse 6, for God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We have an issue here, and that is that the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they couldn't see, to keep them from seeing. What do, what do we want them to see? The light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. When we're born again by the Spirit of God, when we're, when we're changed and supernaturally regenerated, we see something that we didn't see before, and what we see is the glory of God in a way we've never seen it before. We see the, and we see it in the face of Christ. Another quote from that same book. In evangelism, the Holy Spirit opens the eyes of sinners to see the glory of Christ who is faithfully, faithfully preached in the gospel. If Christ is not preached and his glory is not exalted, the Holy Spirit does not open our eyes. For there is no glorious Christ displayed for us to see. Do you see that? Don't hear this the wrong way, but do you see that sharing the gospel is more than just inviting somebody to church? The Holy Spirit does not do his work apart from the gospel because his work is to open our eyes to see Christ displayed in the gospel. And until the gospel is preached, Christ is not there to see. So what do we share? We share Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit, we might say, flies in perfect formation behind the jet of the Christ-exalting gospel. We're talking about equity. We're talking about capital. This is our capital that we have. This is the seed that we have. And that Jesus says to us through this parable, you've got the gifts, you've got the seed, you've got the gospel, you've got the gospel of the kingdom, you have the message of God reigning. I want you to do business with this. Use this as your capital. Use this as your equity. And I'll give you the ability to go out and share this with people through whatever means. There's a number of ways to do this. He says he has shown his light into our hearts. If you have been regenerated and born again from above by the Holy Spirit, you have had the light of God shining into your hearts. You have seen the light, as Hank Williams wrote. And you have seen the knowledge of the life-transforming glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Paul writes, or, or says, Luke writes in Acts 26, I am sending you to open their eyes. And I want to tell you, saints, God is sending you. Everybody say me. God is sending you to open their eyes. You. Let that sink in. I know we've been taught all of our lives that's for the clergy, that's for the, the theologians, that's for those who know a lot. I'm sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins. That's our mission. 
not just the Apostle Paul. That's the mission of every follower of Jesus Christ. And therefore, Jesus' church is what I call boots on the ground. Boots on the ground. God's occupational ground force, and he always has boots on the ground. Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father and making intercession for you and for me. He's the head of the church. He's governing his church. He's reigning over his church today. But we're here. He said, uh, he said in the prayer, I'm not here, but they are. You and I have a mission. The church, which is his body in the earth, we are his boots on the ground. I'm not going to turn to Romans 10. James quoted some of it to you. But Romans 10 teaches us this. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? He, he preceded that by saying, all who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So how are they going to call on him in whom they've not believed? And how will they believe in him whom they have not heard? Paul's so structured, I like this guy. And how will they hear without a preacher or a proclaimer? I don't like using the word preacher because immediately we think of clergy. How will they hear without someone to tell them? Granger paraphrase. And how will they tell them unless they are sent? Remember Jesus said, I'm sending them the way you sent me. We're all, everybody's sent, S-E-N-T, every one of us whether we like it or not. I hope we like it. And we see that verse that John Piper quoted. We see it again, how beautiful. Upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. Now, some of you may have ugly feet. I don't want to see them. But according to the scripture, if you bring good news, you have beautiful feet. You have beautiful feet. I don't want to leave that alone. That might, get, that might get awkward. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news and who publishes peace and who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Your God reigns. Hearing who has believed what he has heard, he says. It's, I want to talk about those who have believed what they have heard, and they can't hear unless you and I proclaim. I was talking to someone one time who is um, um, what we call a com a complete Calvinist. All five elements of the tulip. Somebody said, "What in the world is he talking about?" Well, it's similar to roses. I know. I'm just kidding. <clears throat> and I said to this person. Explain to me if you believe in, in uh, limited atonement, if you believe that God has identified certain people to be saved and certain people to be condemned, uh, explain to me why you even bother to evangelize. And there are certain groups of people who are, are uh, hyper-Calvinists and they don't believe in evangelism because they say whoever God's going to save, he's going to save. We have nothing to do with it. That's not what the book says. And this person said to me, well, I tell you, I look at it this way. I don't know who God's chosen. I don't know who the elect are. And it's not my business to try to find out. So I share the gospel with everybody. 
And I leave the rest to God. Now, I'm not trying to turn you into Calvinists today. I'm trying to say, even if you are a Calvinist, you have the spiritual onus to present the gospel to every living being. And let God shake it out however he wants. And I'm not going to get into that. I'll lose you. So here's how I'm going to conclude today and this series. I'm just going to give you two statements. Sometimes I think I write better than I talk. Some some of you said, yeah, you're right about that. (laughs) This exceedingly great army working together and sharing life together is commissioned by the Father to go out into the world with our bags of seed, sowing the seed of the gospel and shining the light of the gospel to those whose minds the God of this world has blinded. So equipped with the power of God and the many supernatural gifts provided by the Father through the Spirit, we are thoroughly furnished for the task of compelling the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind to come in that his house may be filled. Can you say amen? Amen. Stand with me.